to the Way of Oneness. Hi everyone, I'm Christopher Kakuyo Sensei, and I'm a Sensei of the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. We are an independent, transsectarian, all-inclusive American Sangha in the Mahayana tradition. The Way of Oneness podcast is a collection of our Dharma talks, delivered at our Salt Lake City Fellowship Sangha. Enjoy the Dharma talk. For today's Dharma talk, the talk is titled The Green, the Gray Parrot. It's taken from what's known as a Jataka tale, which are very popular in Southeast Asia, and they're very traditional. There's about 550 tales, and these tales consist of the Buddha's life or lives before he became a Buddha. Um, and in many of these lives before, he was an animal, um, and sometimes a human being. So there are these beautiful parables told in um, stories by anthropomorphizing animals. Now, most of these tales are about 150 years after the Buddha's death, and they range from about 300 BC to about 400 AD, the range that they were they were written. So this one is is the story we'll start off with, and it's the story of the gray, the gray parrot. The Buddha was once a gray parrot. When lightning set a tree ablaze and her forest begins to burn, the parrot cries out a warning to the others. Fire, fire, run to the river. And she flies towards the safety of the river and its other shore. But as she flies, she sees below her animals and trees already trapped, surrounded by flames, and suddenly she sees a way to save them. She flies to the river. The animals already huddled safety there are sure nothing more can be done. Each offers a valid reason for staying safely put, not making any other efforts. But the little parrot, she has spotted a way, so she must try. She wets her feathers in the river, fills a leaf cup with water, and flies back over the burning forest. Back and forth, she flies, carrying drops of water. Her feathers become charred, her claws crack, her eyes burn red as coals. A god looking down sees her. Other gods laugh at her foolishness, but this god changes into a great eagle and flies down and tells her, as it's hopeless, to turn back. She won't listen. She continues bringing drop by drop by drop. Seeing her selfless bravery, the god is overwhelmed and begins to weep. His tears put out the fire and heal all the animals, plants, and trees. Falling on the little parrot, the tears cause her charred feathers to grow back red as fire, blue as river, green as forest, yellow as sunlight. She is now a beautiful bird. The parrot flies happily over the healed forest she has saved. 
So that story may sound familiar. And we've shared a similar story that's from the Quichon people of Ecuador. It's the story of a hummingbird. The hummingbird sees the same type of fire and the animals being hurt. She goes and takes up a little beak full of water and dumps it on the flames. And all the other animals are laughing at her, saying, what can you do? And she says, I'm doing what I can. So I, I love the fact that these are two stories, two very similar stories that were born out of the heart of man and woman. Two very different cultures. Thousands and thousands of miles away and hundreds of years apart. And yet, they tell us something about the human heart. One of the highest human values is that of compassion in action. Both the parent and the hummingbird are aware of the impossibility of what they are trying to do, but they can't do otherwise. They have no choice. And I like the hummingbird story per personally because there is, we don't know the outcome. We just know the hummingbird is doing what the bird is doing. And in the green parrot, which is the ancient Buddha story, there's an outcome and there's this resolution, uh, which is lovely, but I think the hummingbird resonates a little more with me personally. In times that we're living right now, it's very easy to feel powerless, to feel helpless. Like there is so little that we can do we see all the suffering in the world. We see all the brokenheartedness, all the destruction. And we hurt. And we go numb. Turn away. And we find our distractions. Because it's just too much. It's just too much. We find ourselves cut off from our heart because we perceive there's nothing we can do. It's too big. I'm too small. I want to do something. But what's the use? That's what I love about these two stories. We all know the feeling. And here in the magic of parable, our true hearts are given voice. I also think it's the true heart at the center of the Bodhisattva vows. Now, some of us have taken the vows. And one of the things I love about the vows is the impossibility of the effort within them, which is the same impossibility of the parrot and the hummingbird. But the impossibility doesn't stop them. They don't say, well, it can't be done. They're not utilitarian. They know what their heart is calling them to do. And they do it. Here are the Bodhisattva vows that some of us have taken. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them all. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them all. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Now, 
both of these stories and the vow have one thing in common, and that is that Im that impossibility. It's not possible to save numberless beings. So why should we take vows that there's no way to achieve? And what is it about the story of the parrot and the hummingbird that resonates? So what is it about that story? We've told the hummingbird story plenty of times. What is it about that story that resonates? The thing I love about this, the hummingbird, is the hummingbird is the smallest of birds. The most insignificant of birds. Okay? But any, anybody knows anything about hummingbirds? They migrate thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. They, they fly across the ocean. And if there's a storm, they're gone. There's something about that that speaks to the hummingbird within our heart. The hummingbird that vibrates in our heart. It represents us. And it's not about practicality. The bodhisattva vows are not about utilitarian purpose. Let's go on. So except for a few diehard utilitarians, the response to the story from kids to adults alike is an emotional one. It speaks to something. Because I think at the heart it says something about us. Maybe it's the whispering of our inner Buddha nature or the whispers from our ancient inner warrior poets that no man, woman, deer, or tree be left behind. I love the Bodhisattva vows. It is what attracted me in Buddhism in the first place. There is something epic and at the same time so obvious to me in them. I love what Shunru Suzuki said about the vows when somebody asked him, why would anybody take such a vow? And he said, we have to, because our true nature wants us to. End quote. In one of the more traditional translations, the first vow is, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Now, I personally like the word free better. Years of being a psychological martyr, trying to literally save others, and ultimately not for their benefit, but for my own, that I needed to earn love. The word save can be a little problematic. <laughs> <laughs> and they bring this up to make an important point. Something that I learned that helped me put down the book of the martyrs and just be an ordinary human. When someone acts as a martyr, as a rescuer, there is from the start an inequality, a superiority complex, a power dynamic, which puts the sufferer and the saver on different levels. Which is ironic, because so many rescuers I know, me being one, have issues with low self-esteem, shame, victimization, and trauma. I think this is important to remember. As Pema Chodron teaches, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It is a relationship of equals. End quote. I love the idea of the wounded healer. Because could it be any other way? For me, the motivation that drives the first Bodhisattva vow is this. It's out of our own woundedness revealed 
that we want to be a healer for ourselves and for others. Pema Children goes on to teach, only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. End quote. One of the mistakes we make is that we try to heal ourselves by healing others. We are unaware that healing is directionless. It is non-dualistic because it goes in all directions, out and in, up and down, and in no direction because we are in the midst of healing. Not knowing this, we tend to put it in the wrong order. It becomes this for that, an unconscious economic transaction. Some of us believe that by saving you, and only by saving you, I will be loved. I will be acceptable. I will be okay. It rarely has anything to do about being healed or about knowing our own darkness. In some ways, the martyr or the rescuer, rescuer thinks that if they save you, they will no longer have to know their own darkness. They can banish it, keep it at bay. Freeing you, saving you, is all they need to do to dispel the darkness. The problem with this thinking is that it doesn't work. I think that is one of the reasons why the vows are written the way they are. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. Built into the vow is the impossibility. And the impossibility is important. The vows are not transactional. There is no choice in them. It's all or nothing. We're not just freeing nice people or attractive people or skinny people or fat people or just our family or just our country. We are freeing all people. All people. There's no end point either. It's forever. We're doing this forever. There is no done. If I can just save you, then everything will be okay, is what the martyr thinks. But wait, there's another and another and another, and I vow to free them all. This is liberating in a way. Because ultimately, the paradox of freedom is when we choose not to have a choice. That is when we are truly free. I love these lines from Robert Atkin. I have heard people say, I cannot recite these vows because I cannot hope to fulfill them. Actually, Kanzion, the incarnation of mercy and compassion, weeps because she cannot save all beings. Nobody fulfills these. Great vows for all, but we vow to fulfill them as best we can. That is our practice. The impossibility is the point. As Mark Nickelbain has written, to commit to these impossibilities is to acknowledge that every being can be and deserves to be released from suffering, ourselves included.
end quote. That means yourself, your neighbor, your ex-wife, your ex-girlfriend, your ex-boyfriend, your boss, the person who violently cuts you off on the way <laughs> to Sanga. All of them. When we vow to free all beings, we no longer have to decide who we're called to be compassionate towards. We're called to be compassionate towards all of them. All beings. Every being suffers. Every being suffers. suffering matters. I really like this from Rick Ferris. I have, if I vow to save all beings, then if I come across a particular being that I can save, I should save it. I don't have to debate whether I should save this being. I've already made the vow. Choosing to, be, choosing to free all beings really means freeing myself. Because what good would it be to be free all alone while others are suffering? The vows are about attending to our own shit our own anger, our own fear, our own suffering. And at the same time, I am attending to yours through deep listening, compassionate action. If my vow is to free numberless beings, that means I can't be casting blame on others. I can't be making up excuses or rationalizing or justifying what I want because I want it. I need to put all of these down as offering to all the Buddhas. By attending to my own life, by, waking the, by walking the way of oneness with all other beings, I have already set the Bodhisattva vow into action. It means that I am doing what I can right now, one beakful, one feather-soaked moment at a time. Right now, right here. Our aspiration is for greater and greater awakening, but if we decide to wait until we are awakened to free others, to help them in their suffering, what good would that be? It's going to take me a long, damn, ass time. <laughs> Our vows are the vows of an ordinary human being sparked by love. We vow to become a wounded healer. Our awakening is in the vow itself. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them all. Now here are two quotes I want to share. One from Shantideva, the 8th century sage who wrote the way of the Bodhisattva in Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. First Shantideva. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. And this is an aspiration I think a lot of us um, resonate with. Quote, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine. May I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. End quote. And from Trungpa Rinpoche, quote, As the earth sustains the atmosphere and outer space accommodates the stars, galaxies, and all the rest, we are willing to carry the burdens of the world. We are inspired by the physical example of the universe. 
We offer ourselves as wind, fire, air, earth, and water. All elements. End quote. The task may seem great, if not impossible. There is so much suffering. Our practice is universal. Our activity is local. We do this not by changing the world, but by changing ourselves. We do this in West Valley, working in our immigrant communities and helping working with homeless downtown. We do this with our neighbor or our brother we haven't talked to or our sister that our hearts break with. We do this not by saving the forest in the Amazon, but fighting for the rivers and desert lands right here, right now. And I want to close with my, one of my favorite stories. And you've all probably heard it before. And it's funny, when I was putting this down, I, I cried. And I cried every time I read it. Almost. Um, so, there, there's a young man, and he's walking along the ocean. And he sees a beach. And on the beach, there's thousands and thousands of starfish just washed ashore. There's a big storm. He looks down, on, down, the, down the water, and he sees an old man bending over, grabbing up a starfish, and throwing it back into the water. And he goes up to this old guy and goes, what are you doing, crazy old man? There's thousands of them. What are you doing? Why are you throwing them back in the ocean? This is what happens. This is nature. And the old man says to the young man, 